So this is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. When Jesus was born in the village of Bethlehem in Judea, Herod was king. During this time, some wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and said, Where is the child born to be king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard about this, he was worried, and so was everyone else in Jerusalem. Herod brought together the chief priests and the teachers of the law of Moses and asked them, Where will the Messiah be born? They told him, He will be born in in Bethlehem, just as the prophet wrote. Bethlehem, in the land of Judea. You're very important among the towns of Judea. From the town will come a leader who will be like a shepherd for my people Israel. Herod secretly called in the wise men and asked them when they had first seen the star. He told them, go to Bethlehem. And search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, let me know. I want to go and worship him too. The wise men listened to what the king had said and then left. And the star they had seen in the east went on ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. They were thrilled and excited to see the star. When the men went into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, They knelt down and worshipped him. They took out their gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh and gave them to him. Later, they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod and they went back home by another road. Thanks. Oh, should be all right. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to be um, back with you. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Sheridan. I'm married to Merrin, the husband of one wife, which uh, is more, we can say, more than what we can say for Herod. Um, we'll find that out in a second. Um, and Merrin and I have been part of Oxford Community Church for, uh, I think, the last couple of years now, actually. Not that you'd recognize it from the last few months, because we haven't really been around here for a while. It's not that we've been naughty. We've actually been in Australia for a five-week uh, trip over there and uh, have now been back a couple of weeks. It's still still trying to get over the jet lag, I think. Um, and when you're living as an Australian in the UK, and we've been here two and a half years now, when you go back to us, this has got nothing to do with the sermon, but when you go back to your home country, you certainly are able to compare the two countries very well. So, two years ago, two and a half years ago, we're walking down Corn Market Mall. Marin and I have just arrived in Oxford. We're walking down Corn Market Mall, and as we're walking down Corn Market Mall, a mobile phone rings behind us. And we're startled, but we hear this guy pick out his mobile phone from his, from his jeans and say, Oh, Lord Astonbury, how marvellous to hear from you. Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. We don't talk like that in Australia. I don't know if you've ever been to Australia, but we don't hear things like that. Now, compare that to me being in a, a train in Sydney just a few weeks ago, and we're heading in to Sydney City, and an announcement comes over the PA system. I'd just like to remind passengers that it's not appropriate to put your feet on the chairs. (laughs) In fact, you can get a fine for putting your feet on the chairs. So if you've got your feet on the chairs, it's now a good time to take your feet off the chairs. (laughs) And that includes you there in car four. (laughs) 
Yes, I can see you. And you need a haircut. <laughs> Isn't that great? So it's wonderful to be an Australian living in the UK. Anyway, all of that aside, if you and I were to share a coffee and get to know the unique differences between the two of us, and if I was to pry into your life a little bit, I think that before too long, you would be able to tell me about a journey that was defining for you in your life. Maybe it was moving schools as a child. Maybe it was leaving home as a young adult and kind of venturing out into the world by yourself. And it was a big defining moment for you. It's shaped something of who you are today. I reckon if I was to listen closely enough, I would be able to find something in your journey that would be of value to mine. Because that's the value of our stories, is it not? That even though that they're uniquely personal to each one of us, they are surprisingly universal. The lessons that you learn along your path are lessons that I can learn from as well. You with me? We're going to learn, I guess, a similar kind of experience this morning of looking through this particular story of a particular journey. The story of a journey that can become something much more than what it was based in history, something much more than what happened 2,000 years ago, to become the story of a journey that can illuminate our own lives and perhaps provide a paradigm for our own spiritual lives. What is the story? The story is, of course, the well-known story of uh, the wise men, the wise men coming to uh, look for a little uh, child in Bethlehem. It's a very, very well-known story, a very well-known journey, and the story goes something like this. There's three kings who climb onto their camels to follow a star to Bethlehem, and when they get to Bethlehem, they find a little log cabin with a roaring fire, and inside that there's a child in a crib, and there's snow, apparently, for some reason. There is snow, and you would see it if this would only work. There's snow. There's snow. Snow! <laughs> and it's a lovely story because as they kind of do their job and they kind of walk around, they hear the story, and it turns out that there's this story of this, this teenage girl, right? And she's pregnant and she didn't know how she got pregnant, right? And the fact is that it turns out that she came to Bethlehem and she was looking for a place to have a child and there was no hospital available and there wasn't even a motel. So she went to this barn, right? And she was surrounded by animals and she was surrounded by cows and donkeys and she was surrounded by reindeers, of course. It's just what you see, reindeers. Why don't you click that next one on? Reindeers, reindeers. <laughs> Reindeers! <laughs> and then towards the end of the story, you actually have this sleigh that flies in and it, develop, it drops off gifts. And it drops off gifts like gold and frankincense and Cliff Richard's greatest hits. And at the end of the story is the snow falls in Jerusalem. And the sleigh flies off into the sky we find that they all gather around and eat mince pies and eat leftover ham and sing Good King Wenceslas. <laughs> or was it We Three Kings? Was it We Three Kings? How does it go? We Three Kings of Orient are. Let's just break that down for a sec. We Three Kings. Who said there were three? That's not in the story that we just heard from Angus. 
That wasn't there at all. In fact, the Eastern Church thinks there may have been as many as 12 of them. We three kings. Where did that bit come from? That wasn't in the story that Angus read to us. That's kind of come on later on. We three kings of Orient are. Let's just face it, facts. That is just bad grammar. (laughs) We three kings of Orient are. When you sing that to your children... Not only are you reinforcing biblical error, friends, but as well as that, you are teaching them to speak bad. That is just plain wrong. We three kings of Orient are. So, the fact is, we don't know exactly a lot about these wise men from the East. We don't know a lot about them. We do know that uh, there's a few things about them we can tell. By the way, their bones are apparently now buried uh, in Cologne Cathedral. But of course, we also know that uh, the Ark of the Covenant somehow miraculously made its way to Ethiopia. Uh, And we also know that in the Middle Ages, many Europeans claimed to suddenly have vials of the Virgin Mary's breast milk. (laughs) So there may be a little myth in this. A little bit of a myth. Strip all that back. Strip all of that back. And what do we actually have? What do we know about the wise men? Well, we know this. We know that they were from the Order of the Magi, which is this particular religious order of pagan priests, probably Zoroastrians. And they're from the particular order of priests, and their chief job is to be astrologers, astronomers, and dream interpreters. Just the kind of people you'd expect to turn up as heroes in a Christian Bible. (laughs) We know that uh, the Magi, the wise men, as they were, were people of esteem. They were people of status because they actually consulted to the kings. We also know that these ones were particularly wealthy. Gold, frankincense, myrrh do not come cheap. So we have pagan, Zoroastrian, astrologer priests that are basically very rich and have a lot of status and see a sign in the sky. We saw his star. And they come and they follow that star to Jerusalem. And they come saying, we saw his star and we have come to worship him. We saw his star and we have come to worship him. We saw his star. All spiritual journeys, all spiritual journeys begin with a stirring. They begin with a stirring in the soul. There's a prompt, there's a catalyst, there's a crisis, there's an experience that stirs us up to search. It might be a longing in the heart for something more than this. It might be a crisis that reminds us we're not in control of life as much as we thought. It might be a desire for forgiveness. It might be whatever. It might be something else entirely. It might just be this strange, mysterious drawing that we have to come searching, looking for something more than what we have now. It starts with a stirring, every spiritual journey. And for the wise men... The Magi, the stirring is a sign in the sky. We saw his star, and that stirred them up to go on a search. Now, their profession is as astrologers. It's their professional job to look into the stars, to try and interpret life, to try and interpret events, particularly events for the king, by the movement of the planets. And they're looking up into the sky, and there they see this interesting sign. The stirring for them starts off with a sign. I have two questions that straight away come into my mind, though, when it comes to this whole story. Number one, have you asked it yourself, what did they see? What did they see? 
One interpretation that I really like because of its Oxford connections is that they actually saw Halley's Comet. I love that idea because of Edmund Halley setting up his telescope down the road, round the corner from the Bodleian Library, making all of his discoveries and things happening right here in the city. Problem. Halley's Comet came about 12 BC. Jesus is born around 4 BC, so it's just too early. It's not going to work. Bum. That's a bit of a shame. The other idea is that it's actually a constellation between Jupiter and Saturn, and that this happened kind of somewhere around 7, 6, 5 BC, somewhere around then. That could be an option. A third option is that it was just a miraculous occurrence. Here you have these stargazers, and God follows their gaze and says, well, you're looking up here. How about I go and put a miraculous sign right in front of your eyes that you cannot ignore? That's an option. Not that we can ever scientifically confirm it one way or the other. What we do know is the wise men knew that if they followed this star, it would lead to a child. History says that's exactly what happened. So there's a stirring. There's a stirring, and they start following this sign. But the second question I ask myself is, straight away from that one is, how did these pagan astrologers connect what they were seeing in the sky with a Jewish king? How did they make that jump from there over to there? This is fascinating. It turns out that around about this time in history, there was a growing sense across a whole range of cultures, a growing sense that the world was about to have a new leader. All the classical writers start mentioning this. Tacitus says this, there was a firm persuasion that at this very time in the East, the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire universal empire. I think that's pretty cool. God's stirring up the region perhaps to get ready for a little baby that's to be born. That ties in very nicely with some Jewish prophecies. Again, kind of strange for a Christian Bible to include a, a prophecy several hundred years before this event from a pagan oracle named Balaam. And Balaam actually basically said this, I see him, but not here and now. I perceive him, but far in the distant future. A star will rise in Jacob. A scepter will emerge from Israel. A scepter signified a king, and this king was to be signified by a star. Pretty cool. All these things coming together. All these things connecting up. All these things kind of making their way into one little story. A star would signify the birth of this particular king. The wise men were very well-read people, and they probably heard about the Jewish scriptures from Daniel, a Jew, 600 years before, who introduced them to the Jewish scriptures because he became a magi, doesn't the story get complex? And he became a magi, not because he was an astrologer, but because he was gifted by God to interpret the king's dreams. So, who are the wise men? The wise men are these people. The wise men are pagan astrologers, astronomers, philosophers, who are wealthy, very esteemed, who put aside the comfort of their wealth, who put aside the status that they have to take a very, very long journey and go and look for another religion's religious leader. Now, that's pretty good. That's a commitment to open-mindedness, don't you think? That's a commitment to seek the truth. That's a commitment to seek the truth wherever it leads. That's a commitment. So the wise men go and do that, and they start on their journey. They start in this particular stirring. The stirring has been a sign for them. What was, what is, 
the stirring for you? What was, what is the stirring for you, the stirring in your soul that says, I need to search? Maybe it is a crisis in your life that has reminded you that you are not in control as much as you thought of your life. Maybe it is just a longing inside, a sense that there's got to be something more to life than what I've got. Maybe it's a longing for forgiveness. Maybe you know you've crossed the line, you've broken the rules, you've done bad, and no matter how many times you try to distract yourself from it, you know you need forgiveness from a divine agent at a divine scale. Maybe it is just a mysterious sense of being drawn, being drawn to something else, being drawn to something more. I mentioned this trip in Australia. Uh, the majority of that trip was this three-week speaking trip that I was doing over a book that I've just released. You know, it was a very intense trip. It was a great trip, but it was very intense. 18 events squished into three weeks, plus media events. Absolutely exhausted. But it was a wonderful trip, and it ended towards the end with this really cool experience. I was speaking in a very large church in Perth and Western Australia, 4,000 people. And after four services, all pretty tired, there's a lot of people after the evening service lining up to talk and, and pray. Now, this is one guy who just stuck around all night. He was one of the last people to, I was able to speak to. And as he came forward, I said, look, I'm so sorry. I've seen you waiting there for such a long time. I just couldn't get to you any sooner. And he said, well, I just wanted to tell you my story. I said, well, go ahead. He said, I haven't been to church in 26 years. I was talking about how God redeems broken dreams. And he went on and he said, my marriage has just broken down. I've just lost my business. I've got a ton of broken dreams. I don't know who you are. I didn't know what you were going to speak on tonight. But all this week I had this strange sense that I should get myself to a church service. And after what you've said, it's rocked me. I feel like I'm here for a, for a purpose. Cool, isn't it? A couple of minutes later... Another couple come up, they walk up, and I say, look, I'm so sorry that you've had to wait this long. And they say, well, we just wanted to tell you our story. The guy says, I haven't been to church in years. And the girl puts her hand up and she says, I've never been to church. We don't know who you are, we didn't know what you were going to speak about tonight, but all this week we had this strange sense that we should get ourselves to a church service. This was the first church that came up in a Google search. He said, we don't know who you are or what you were going to speak about tonight, but we came and what you have spoken about has spoken directly to our lives. It's as if we're supposed to be here. <laughs> Drawing, being stirred, beyond emotions, beyond circumstances, the hand of God ushering you to come. We saw his star, the wise men say, and then they say, and we have come. It's my conviction that a lot of people are stirred, but only a few people commit to the search. A lot of people are stirred, but only a few will continue on to do the search. We have seen his star, and we have come. We have come. Now, it may surprise you to know, but in the fourth year BC, there was no such thing as EasyJet. There was no such thing as Eurorail. They didn't come or travel by car or by air, by Eurostar. They came by camel. Now, they're probably from either Iran or Iraq, modern day. 
equivalent, Iran or Iraq. If you go to Google Maps and you do a little bit of a search as to how long that actually is and then click the walking button, (laughs) as they most likely did, you will see it's a long way. In fact, the best case scenario is this is about 1,200 miles. Now, we don't know how many people there were. We know it probably wasn't three. It could well have been 12. They would have had an entourage as well. There's a lot of people we're talking about. Taking that many people for 1,200 miles through the desert takes a lot of preparation, weeks, months. We know that 1,200 miles walking with camels very, very slowly through desert would have taken at least three months. It probably took up to a year. It could have taken over a year. Nobody knows the emotional, the physical exhaustion that rests behind those words, we have come. We have come. We have come. We have arrived. They've chased the light. It's brought them to Jerusalem. And now they start asking around the town, where is this newborn king of the Jews? We know he's here. We've followed his light. Now, Herod, 40 years before this, has been named king of the Jews. So you can get the idea that he's probably a little jittery about this person who comes in, this group of people, this group of foreigners who come into his city and say, uh, you have a rival. So he gets a bit jittery. By this stage, he's actually old. He doesn't know it yet, but this is his final year of life. The wise men come looking for a new king as the old king is about to leave the stage. It's his final year of life. He is jealous and he is paranoid. He has already killed a number of his very faithful, devoted followers. He's killed his favorite wife. Don't worry, he had a few others up his sleeve. He's killed two of his sons, all because he felt that they were a threat to his throne. Where is this newborn king of the Jews? And Herod says, why don't you tell me? Herod gathers together the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, and they do a Bible study. And the Bible study turns out that, well, if there's going to be a Messiah born, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so Herod says to the wise men, Go and find out where the child is and and let me know so that I too may go and worship him. So what started as a search prompted by a divine stirring has now involved political intrigue. Now they have been drawn in to what is probably basically a search and destroy mission. There is a high stake involved here. Somebody is going to die. It's either going to be the child as a result of them fulfilling Herod's request or it's going to be them out of disobedience to Herod's request. Just how much a price are they paying to search? There is a stirring. There is a searching. And what price do they pay? What price do they pay? The emotional, the physical, the psychological. And now there's the the challenge of this political intrigue that they've been, they've been brought into. What kind of price are they willing to pay to come and find this newborn king of the Jews? And I ask you, as we look at this story to illuminate our spiritual lives, what kind of price are you willing to pay? What kind of price are you willing to pay to find him, to find the truth, to lead and follow the truth wherever it leads? What price? The most dramatic stories that we find echoing this story right now are those that are coming out of the Middle East. You would have heard of this phenomenon, probably, of Jesus appearing to Muslims in their dreams. You heard of the story? It's been happening for the last, what, two, three decades. 
people who are unrelated to each other, so they haven't actually suggested it to each other. It's not just their dreams kind of, you know, playing off psychologically from what they've heard. They're unrelated to each other, don't know anything about this phenomenon. Jesus appears to them, he says he loves them, and he calls them to follow him. In one case, I heard about a story of a guy who had an experience like this. He went searching and walking for hundreds of miles to find a church so that a Christian could interpret the experience for him. That's commitment. If you follow the newsletters of organizations like Open Doors, Voice of the Martyrs, those kinds of organizations that deal with the persecuted church, Christians in religiously restricted countries, you'll hear similar stories. Stories of people who, just like the wise men, find themselves stirred, and they go on a search, but as a result of that search, they get themselves in a lot of danger. In fact, their lives are at stake, and often they lose their lives for finding the Christ child. What price? I've already mentioned, I think, in another message, my mum to you. My mother became... My mother went forward at a Billy Graham crusade back in London in, what, the 50s? But that was back in the stage where there wasn't very good follow-up of people who decided to make a commitment, you know, go forward and put up their hands and everything as a result of those big stadium rallies that Billy Graham and his team had. So very soon, my mum found herself uh, getting baptised into a religious cult, a very well-known religious cult. And she even went to Peru as a missionary with this religious cult. She was in it for such a long time, though, that suddenly she became to have these little kind of awakenings in her mind, little bells going off, something is not right here. Something is not right. And particularly, what this cult teaches about Jesus, I'm not too sure if that's right. She wasn't allowed to take those questions to anybody else apart from the religious leaders within her own organization. If she did, she faced excommunication and losing all of her friends as a result. So what did she do? Every morning, she opened up her New World Translation Bible, plus three other Bibles that she got, which she should not have. You know, they said satanic translations like the Good News Bible. (laughs) And she read the same verses in each of those Bibles with one question, Jehovah, tell me who Jesus is. Is he just a man? Is he an angel, which I've been taught? Or is he more? How long did she do that for? Ten years. Ten years until she found her answer. That's why I'm standing in front of you today. Ten years. She left the organization, lost all of her friends. What cost? What cost? Because I have to say, friends, I don't see the same degree of intensity of seeking after God as those three stories I've actually told you about here, right here in the secular West, in secular secular Australia, in secular uh, England, in secular America. We're not intense as that to pay that much cost for finding him for finding where the truth actually leads. Will you pay a cost? Is he that worth it? Is he worth it that much? Even though the intensity of our search may not be kind of quite that intense at the moment, I still see us searching, though. I still see us spiritually searching. As somebody said, it was an advertising executive of all things. He said, people will never stop searching for God, but they will choose other mediators. And so, yes, I don't see people flocking into churches everywhere saying, who is Jesus? But I do see us searching in a whole heap of other ways. I see us searching in the bookstores. I see us getting stirred. I see us running to the bookstore and going to the New Age section and picking up a book, a self-help book, to try and get answers. 
You think about some of the big popular kind of new age, new spirituality, self-help books over the last few decades. In the 70s and 80s, it was M. Scott Peck's The Road Less Traveled. In the 90s, it was oh, a Celestine Prophecy by James Redfield. In the 2000s, it was Rhonda Byrne's The Secret. Today, you pick up a Neil Donald Walsh book. It might be Eckhart Tolle. It might be the Dalai Lama, Deepak Chopra. Those books are running off the shelves. There is a search happening in our bookstores. I see us searching in a whole heap of other ways. I see us searching in that modern phenomenon of the revised and kind of this new kind of revival of pilgrimage that's happening. Anybody been watching that documentary series on pilgrimage with that guy? Uh, people running, even though they're not religious, they're going on walks to Lindisfarne, they're going over to Iona, they're heading down to Stonehenge. Some of them are doing the 300-mile pilgrimage trek, which is called the Camino. It starts at the edge of France and goes along Spain. And they'll all say that they're not religious, but they will say they're on a spiritual search. I want to find myself. I want to find some meaning. I want to find something. We're still searching. We're still searching. We're just choosing other mediators. I see this search in the counselor's office. Anybody see that really interesting article in the Guardian magazine last weekend? It was called Britain on the Couch. And they went and surveyed a whole heap of psychologists to find out what are we as Britons, and I can say that because I have a British passport, what are we as Brits going to psychologists for? And they, there were some common ones. Internet porn is ruining relationships. They all talked about that. Work-life balance is all coming about that. But so many of them said it all comes down to really two things. Who am I and what am I here for? And then one psychologist hit what so many researchers have put in, 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 in book form. She put it into one sentence. People bring us the questions they used to take to a priest. We are searching in our secular world. We're still searching. We're just choosing other mediators. I see the search as we get in our cars and we head off to what people are now calling the cathedrals of consumption, the shopping centre. You think about the big shopping centres. Think about uh, the one in London, um, Homebush, what's it called? Westfield. Westfield. Think about that one. You walk through the, the, the gates, and they're big arched gates. <laughs> you walk inside, and you look up, and there is this immense space, just like a cathedral. Often there's windows at the top, maybe an atrium to let in all the heavenly light. <laughs> you jump onto the escalators, and you're lifted up to the heavens. <laughs> and the further up you go, the more expensive the shops become, like you're getting closer to God. You think about us walking past the shop windows, and what do we see in the shop windows? We see icons that we want to emulate, and we say, I would like to be like that. I would like to look like that. I'd like to be as skinny as that. And we walk into the chapel, and we try on a new us, and the priest who's in the chapel that day gives us a blessing. You look good in that. (laughs) And we take our offering, and we go up to the altar, and we put it on the altar, we hand over our offering, and we walk out with a new us. How many of us have not gone shopping when we felt low? I see us searching. We are searching. We are searching in so many different ways. We are still searching. Where's the newborn king of the Jews, they ask. Where's the newborn king of the Jews? Where is the new me? 
Where is the me that I need to be? That's all I can think of to search for right now because I've lost any sense that there's some sort of divine being out there. But where is the me that I can actually be? We're still on a spiritual search. There is a stirring, there is a searching. And what comes after the stirring and the searching proves the power of what you found. Stirring, searching. The third time they come back, they say, we saw his star. We have come to worship him. We have come to worship him. The wise men leave Herod's home. Bethlehem is only six miles away from there, basically the same distance from town out to Ensham, and probably it's a village about the same size. So they head out there, they arrive in two hours' time. The star leads them to a home. They stand outside of that home. Now, let's get this straight. The newborn child inside that home is not the little baby in the manger anymore. That's where all the Christmas cards get it wrong. This child is at least a year old now, if not more. Why? Because when they first saw the star, there's been at least a good year until they're able to arrive in Jerusalem. Get it? We also know the the fact that the child is older than just a little newborn by the fact that very soon the wise men are going to defy Herod They're going to conceal the child's location, not reveal it. And as a result, Herod, weird as he is, wacky as he is, as paranoid as he is, is going to go and order that all the boys in Bethlehem, two years old or under, are massacred to make sure he hits his mark. That's one bit of the story we never have in our Sunday school pageants. (laughs) Two years old. We're talking about a child here. We're talking about a child. We saw his star... We have come to worship him. They enter the home. They see Mary holding the child. And then they do what is so unexpected. Remember, Herod is the king of the Jews. Remember that his boss, his Roman boss, Caesar Augustus, has declared himself to be the savior of the world. Remember that even the wise men's own Persian rulers have for centuries been crowned kings of kings. And they do what is unheard of for people in their position, all their wealth, all their status, their special roles within the community that they come from, all that's happening within the very city that they're in now. They get down, bend the knee, and bow. They bow. We saw his star. We have come to worship him. A stirring, a searching, and then a humbling that happens. They bow to somebody greater than themselves. Now this, let me go back to my original idea, that this story can illuminate our own spiritual lives. It can illuminate our own spiritual journeys. This one act can ask two very important questions of the spirituality <clears throat> excuse me, that, I've, that we've found as a result of our searching. It asks the first question, and the first question is this. Does the spirituality that you've found call you to bow? Does the spirituality you've found as you've searched call you to bow? Does it call you to bow the knee to somebody greater than you, something greater than you, or does it bring you back to yourself like a lot of self-empowerment products do. 
You think about most of the self-help courses. You think about the personal development courses. You think about most of the self-help books. They are mostly about self-empowerment. Nothing wrong with that. But if that's where you stop, can you not see that at that point we are limiting our answers to us, our resources, our strength, all that we have? Nothing bigger than us. Does your spirituality lead you to not just self-fulfillment, but to self-sacrifice? Does it call you to a radical love, a love that is greater than you, or just to help you feel more in control of your life? Does it call us to something much bigger than us? Does the spirituality that you find as you journey along, does it call you to a God who calls you to something of a demand? Because every spirituality, even the secular form, will have a God in it. It won't take too long to find out what that God is, the one at the center, the one at the focus point of the spirituality. And is the God that we find as we go through our spiritual search, is this the God who actually calls us to give our whole mind, body, spirit, self, our whole very lives to both him now and forevermore? Does it call us to that kind of a commitment? Is this a, a call, a God that is so big, so great, the God who threw all the stars into spinning in the world, the God, God who called us to actually be, be born, to actually brought us into existence? Is it a call to actually submit ourselves and surrender to that God? Or is it a God who keeps on coming back to ourselves so it's only actually at our level that we find ourselves in? It's the God that you find, the spirituality that you find, Is it a spirituality that calls you to humble yourself and bow or step up and control? We saw his star, we followed, we bowed. But the story says one more thing. It says another question to us about the spirituality that we found. Is the God that you have found in the midst of that spirituality you have found, is the God that you have found humble himself? Herod required you to bow when he came when you came into his presence he required you to bow he's the king of the jews caesar the savior of the world required that you bowed when you came into his presence if you were lucky enough or unlucky enough depending on what the circumstances were you had to bow but were they humble see as they walk into that room as they walk into that house as they bow down and they bring their gold and their incense and their myrrh, I think they are beyond what they've even discovered at this present moment. They are actually discovering something even much more. They are discovering the truth that is so big and beyond them, it'll actually take them years to work out. It may just be that they're offering homage at this particular point, but they're actually being called to something so much bigger because it turns out to be that the profound fact is the wise men don't just bow the knee to a baby. They don't just bow the knee to a king to be. They bow to the one who is himself divine. That's the Christian claim. The one who himself is divine. Humble? The great God of the universe, if this is true, the God who is great, the great God of the universe, ends up making himself the smallest God of the universe squeezing himself, even though the universe can't contain him, squeezing himself, reducing himself, shrinking himself, down, 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 smaller, 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 into the size of an ovum, the size of a fertilized egg inside a teenage girl's tummy. Humble? 
The ovum becomes an embryo. The embryo becomes a baby. The baby is born. The baby who cannot talk or walk, the baby who cannot feed himself, change himself, the baby who is vulnerable to anybody else who is going to look after him. Humble? The child becomes a boy. The boy becomes a man. The man comes out to serve. And he goes to the very least of these. And he goes to the people who nobody else will touch, to the lepers who nobody else would lay a finger on. He goes to the poor, the people everybody wrote off because they were valueless. He goes and raises the dead and heals the sick. He goes and serves the poor, befriends the lonely. He goes and does all of these things. He doesn't go build palaces with gold thrones and water fountains. Humble? The boy who became the man then submits himself to the very hands of the humanity that he has made. And even though he could have called 10,000 angels to his side to fight the battle for him, submits to the very people he has made, picking him up, whipping his back red, throwing him onto a piece of two pieces of wood, pinning him up by the hands and the feet by a couple of rusty nails. Humble? A God who stands there, hangs there, dripping with blood, dripping, and says this, even this is how far I'll go to show you that I love you. This, even this, is how far I'll go to find you. This is how far I'll go. What is the penalty for treason against this king? What is the penalty for treason for going against the God who made you and therefore has every right to own you. What is the penalty for treason against this king? I'll pay it, he says. What is the price? What is the price to ignore the God who loves you and who's only ever had your best interests at heart? What's the price? I'll pay it. This is how far I'll go. This is how far I'll go. Stirring, searching, humbling. I was stirred and I came humbling, searching for you. That's the story. Humble, humble is the Christianity that we've found, the spirituality that we've found. Does it call us to bow? Does it inspire us to bend our knee to somebody so much greater than that, so much greater than ourselves. But secondly, does inspire us to bend the knee to someone who is so much more humble than we can ever imagine. We saw his star. We came. We worshipped. Stirring, searching. And if our spirituality doesn't lead to a humbling, can I suggest it's not big enough to accept few years ago, I was uh, sitting in a church auditorium and I heard Shona tell her story. And this is how it goes. All my material, intellectual, family and selfish needs were being met, but there was something more I needed and my constant searching for this missing element was driving me nuts, stirring. She went on a search. She actually enrolled her child her daughter in a Christian school and she was started to get a little bit concerned because she knew that as this girl went to this Christian school, went to religious education classes and everything, soon she'd be coming home and asking some tough questions of mum. So she, Shona decided to go and do a basic course on the Christian faith so she could actually have some answers to her daughter when she came home asking questions. 
Four weeks into that course, she had a dream. In my dream, I was at a fabulous party having a wonderful time when I heard a quiet knock at the door. I opened the door and there was this person. He wasn't tremendously tall or anything, but he really stood out because he was so radiant with such a clear white light. There were a couple of figures behind him, but they just faded into the insignificance compared to him. Wow, I said, I want a piece of what you have. I want to be like you. You can, he said, and reached over and touched me above my heart. I looked down and I could see into my heart and there was a spark of his light there and I knew it could grow. I woke bolt upright at about 2.30 in the morning and I realized then it was Jesus Christ himself who had come to me in my dream. That was when I truly asked him to take control of me and be with me always. There was a stirring, there was a searching, there was a sign in the sky, a sign in her dreams and it led to a humble surrender. A humble surrender, stirring, searching, humbling, humbling. Steve before talked about a flickering light. A flickering light, it's only just there, barely there. Maybe that's you. Maybe the light's hardly there at all. You're not even too sure if it's even flickering. Here's an opportunity to consider this claim, this story, that the great God of the universe became the smallest God in the universe in the story that we've heard. Maybe you're ready to bend the knee. Maybe you're ready to surrender humbly. It takes humility. We have to say, Lord, we have put ourselves in your place when you are the rightful place in our lives. It takes humility. I hope you're ready if you're in that position. Maybe you're still searching a bit. You'd like to know a little bit more about Jesus and everything. Shona did a a little course. We've run something very similar here called Alpha. Six sessions, you'll eat some food, you'll have some laughs, you'll have an opportunity to ask questions in an environment which is okay to ask questions, you know what I mean? It's doubt-friendly, if you know what I mean. You don't have to go 1,200 miles. You don't have to, like my mother, search for 10 years. Would you commit to six sessions? Finding out who Jesus is. So, Lord, speak to us in whatever stage we're at on the journey. Lord, if you are stirring some this morning, I ask that you would not let us go until we have done the next step that you want us to take. Bow the knee before you. Surrender to you. Or at least find out more about you. Don't let our hearts go, Lord. Don't let our hearts go. Hold on to us. Thank you for coming and seeking us when we ran away from you. Thank you for seeking us out humbly when we were the ones who said, stuff you right to your face. Thank you, Lord, for your humility. Thank you, Lord, that you deserve to be the Lord of our lives. Thank you, Lord, that we can say we saw his light and we came to worship him. In Jesus' name, amen.